rainy summer day. Shall we pray? Most gracious God, how good it is to be in your house this morning in the midst of your people and to know that throughout the whole wide world on this Sabbath day that people are gathering to magnify your holy name. And Lord, we just ask that you would bless your word as it is read and that you would uh, bless it as it is spoken by Adam. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians uh, 18 through the end of the chapter, and it is on 952 in your pew Bibles, although we have chair Bibles, I guess. For, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and the folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise according to world standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's good advice. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing our series through 1 Corinthians this morning, beginning at verse 18. In Paul's letter to Corinthians, he's facing several problems, especially infighting. A bunch of these Corinthians didn't like each other, and they had factions Some of them followed a certain leader, others followed a different leader, and they were fighting among themselves for power. They also had trouble with snobbery. They kind of thought certain groups were better than others, and even in communion, the people who had money were in one room and everybody else was in the other room, and Paul is saying, that totally defeats the whole point of communion. The point of communion is reconciliation, so the idea that you've got actual divisions among you while you're celebrating communion shows that you don't understand communion. So a couple of major uh, problems here in Corinth, we're going to study as we go along through this series, some of the theological problems, they even had sexual problems and so on. But right here at the beginning of the letter, uh, he is dealing with their problems with each other, their infighting. These are common problems between human beings, and so what does Paul say? What is the antidote to treating each other badly? What is the antidote to relationship problems? And Paul begins with the cross. 
The message of the cross has the power to change relationships. And so he says here in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Now, again, he's he's dealing and addressing with their relationship trouble. And he goes immediately for this central point. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he says here that the crucifixion is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Outsiders are repulsed by the message of the cross. And that's true even in many places throughout the world today. The Trinity is a difficult concept that God has a son and yet uh, you've got three different persons and one God and so on. The incarnation is strange. The idea that God became a baby in a poor family. The crucifixion is strange that God uh, would die. These are hard concepts. And outsiders look at the gospel and they look at little churches like ours and they think that's that's weird. And that's not what I need in order to find happiness or purpose in my life. If you realize that your life is a little disordered, it feels out of control, or your relationships aren't working or whatever, where do you turn? What do you, what do you look toward? Where does, our, where does the world look toward? Maybe, maybe toward certain TV personalities like Dr. Phil or something like this, or big self-help sections at the bookstore, or maybe even uh, some kind of a professional that deals with these kinds of issues, except Paul focuses on the cross. Not that some of those other things, common grace, revelation, are bad, except he wants them to focus on the cross. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, anybody, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he says, to those who are called, you see, outsiders reject the basic central message of the cross, but to those who are called, Christ is the power of God. Not everybody thinks that the gospel is weird or pathetic. A lot of people do. Maybe most people do, but not everybody does. And who who doesn't think that the gospel is weird or pathetic? And it is people who have been called by God. So what Paul is doing here is contrasting human choice that breaks relationships, breaking relationship between God and man, breaking relationship between man and man. Paul is contrasting that human choice that breaks relationships versus God's choice that builds the church, builds relationships. Now, what happens when we make a choice? What we're doing here is we're analyzing options and we're picking what we like. But church outsiders are looking or analyzing the gospel and they're thinking, no, that, that's weird. It's kind of pathetic. It's not really what I need in terms of getting along with people and organizing my life. And even inside the church, sinful choices tear us apart. People saying, well, I prefer Paul, or I prefer Apollos, or I prefer Peter. So how does the church get built? How is it possible for the church to be built up? Paul is shifting the conversation to the most important thing. It is Christ crucified. You see, God is adopting us into his family by grace. And that there is the antidote to relationship problems at Corinth, and it's the antidote to relationship problems in our own lives. It seems pathetic. It seems kind of silly. It seems weak. 
So when people are unhappy, trying to organize their lives, trying to get a handle on everything just seems chaotic, I've got to find a new approach to this, trying to figure out how to make relationships work, they look to other places for answers. But the gospel is not weak. It is not pathetic. It has divine power to order our lives and to build relationships. So what we're going to do this morning is explore how that happens. I'm going to put on screen here uh, a basic gospel presentation put together by an organization called Matthias Media. This is called Two Ways to Live, and a bunch of us have studied this together. These are just basic, six basic concepts for understanding the gospel. God is the creator, and humanity is designed to rule all creation underneath God's authority, uh, except that humanity rebels. We want to run our lives our own way, and God judges that. God judges and punishes all humanity for this rebellion with eternal conscious punishment in hell. But in his love, God sends Jesus Christ to die as an atoning sacrifice. And in his power, God raises Jesus to life as the ruler and as the judge of all creation. And this presents us with a challenge to repent and believe. So that's a basic gospel presentation. So you're thinking, okay, what does this have to do What is this basic message of crucifixion? What is that basic message of the cross, the basic gospel? What does that have to do with relationship problems in Corinth? And even more important to me, maybe, as I'm sitting here today listening to this, what does this have to do with a relationship problem that I'm having in my life right now? So let's look at these one by one. First of all, God is the creator, and humanity is designed to rule creation under his authority. How does that change relationships? Well, first of all, if God is our creator, the implication is that we live humbly under him and we submit to him. Humility is an important ingredient in our relationships, and we get humility from understanding our place in the cosmos. God is our ruler, and we live in submission to God. Original sin was rebellion against God. It was thinking too highly of ourselves and too little of God. And as we consider what it means to submit to God, we become much less prideful and much less controlling of all the things and people around us. Also, if we are created to rule underneath God's authority, if that's our purpose, that God put Adam and Eve in the garden for the purpose of managing and taking care of his creation then the implication is dignity with responsibility. That is that we would live our lives with dignity, with the responsibility in this world. We see the abuse of power all through creation that comes from sin, tyrannical governments, the misuse of natural resources. Many of you have been uh, reading lately about all the sharks that are killed every year for shark fin soup. About 73 million sharks are killed every year for shark fin soup. And Usually these uh, sharks are tossed back into the ocean, uh, still alive, and they're al- they just basically go into the ocean and they die of drowning or, or bleeding. About 98% of the shark is, is wasted because the only valuable part is the fin. It's about $880 per pound. It'll cost you $100 a bowl for shark fin soup in some places in Asia. And as a result, about one-third of shark species are threatened with extinction. Now, that is not good management of creation. I'm not making an argument for uh, vegetarianism. People in the Old Testament and the New Testament both eat meat. But as rulers under God, we are not tyrants that just use whatever we want. We are managers. We are caretakers under God. People in charge are tempted to use stuff and people. 
instead of having the dignity to care for stuff and people as viceroys under God. But if we do rule as viceroys under God, we bring dignity and we bring responsibility and love into the equation. We give careful attention to God's ways. How does God want this part of his creation managed? A lot of relationship problems come from emotional outbursts and unrestrained desire to control others. I have the power to do this, so I'm going to do this. And I, and I use my power in relationships in order to get what I want. I'm, this, I'm the head of this home, and you're going to do this my way, and so on. But real power comes from humility. It comes from service. It comes from dignity under God's rule, which is designed to bring beauty and order into the world. Humility is incredibly important in our relationships. And so you see this here in, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Would you agree with that? I mean, he's talking to us too. Not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. He's not saying that we're stupid. What he's saying is, None of us really had a TV show. None of us are rock stars. None of us have this huge, you know, uh, this huge organization that tells people how to organize their lives. None of us are really all that popular. None of us have, you know, 10,000 people following us on Twitter so that everything we eat and say is somehow out there and has this influence on people. Nobody's watching our YouTube channel. Consider, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not very many people listening to you. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Anybody related to President Obama? Anybody related in here to President uh, Bush or Clinton? How far back can we go here? There's not very, not very many people that are important in this room. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, the gospel makes us humble. Not humiliated, that's different. The gospel makes us humble, but not humiliated. We were adopted into the royal family. We have responsibility to rule creation. Powerful humility comes from understanding that we are children of God and therefore we have power. But we were saved by grace for the purpose of bringing his influence into creation. So these are amazing truths that bring a powerful humility into our lives so that we interact with people and stuff not as tyrants, but as under managers, under shepherds, underneath the king of kings. Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, she said, I am content to fill a little space if God be glorified. That's a beautiful quote. And it's interesting that she ended up being the mother of two of the most influential people in the Western church. I am content to fill a little space if God be glorified. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 18 says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Well, let's look at the next two. Humanity rebels and we want to run life our own way. And as a result, God punishes humanity for this rebellion. And that punishment ultimately results in death and eternal, eternal death, eternal conscious punishment. 
The implication here as we think through the implications in our relationships, the implication here is that, hey, we are sinners. We have strong, destructive desires, and this transcends personality. Some people are loud, and some people are brooding, but all of us are experts at destroying relationships. We're experts at it. And if you don't know that about yourself, you're dangerous. (laughs) A mature person knows, hey, I have a sin nature. A mature person is self-aware. You say, you know, I, I know the situations where I tend to say and do destructive things. I'm aware of, of, of what situations sometimes bring out the worst in me. I'm aware of those things. I'm thinking about those things. I'm praying about those things. You know, and I've told you guys many times, I sometimes struggle with sullenness, right? Something doesn't go my way, and so I'll kind of mope around the house, super bad mood and stuff like this, and, and, uh, and, and I tend to, uh, in conversations where my heart rate gets high, sometimes something really stupid will pop out of my mouth, and and stuff like this. And so those of you who know me well, you know that about me. You've seen me do that. I've been here long enough for you to see me do that. Um, it's very difficult to have a relationship with somebody who doesn't understand that about himself, who, who doesn't have the self-awareness to say, here's how I destroy relationships, and I have a unique talent at it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm actually very gifted at destroying relationships in this particular way. I just want you to know that about me. If you're going to have a relationship about me, here are some things that I sometimes do. I'm aware of them. I'm praying about them. But hey, you know, if, if we're going to become roommates, then here, here's what you're signing up for. You're going to be a roommate with a sinner. The most dangerous person is the one who agrees with everything that I just said in theory. I'm the biggest sinner. I, oh, I am messed up, and I love the gospel of grace, but I cannot articulate any specific or current way that I actually hurt relationships. It's all either in the past, God has saved me, or it's in theory, oh, I am messed up. But they can't articulate any current or specific way that they hurt relationships. There's no self-awareness of real, actual sin. It's very important in our relationships with each other that we have self-awareness of these basic theological ideas. We are rebels saved by grace. That God has come into our heart and he is making us new. He has given us new life. He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit. He is sanctifying us, but none of us is fully baked yet. Another implication here is that, yes, we are sinners, but particularly that sin expresses itself in wanting my own way. That is the essence of sin. It is a basic definition of sin. I want it like this. We have expectations and we have desires for things to go a certain way in our families, in our churches, in in our lives, in our politics, and so on. And we sometimes respond badly when those desires and those expectations are not met. So the gospel changes our relationships by making us self-aware of how we harm relationships, particularly in this desire to have things go a particular way. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, One characteristic of the Christian is always this, a profound distrust of self and a realization of the power of God. It takes a Christian to see the darkness of his own heart and the frailty of his own nature. That's true. And that changes how we treat people. 
Another implication here is that sin deserves death and sin deserves hell. This is a big deal. You say, ah, yeah, I tend to be a jerk in these situations, you know. And yet the punishment of sin is death. This is a big deal. Jesus Christ died on the cross because we are relationship destroyers. Because we are not people or God lovers, Jesus Christ died on the cross. So in Galatians 5, Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. And he starts with some, you might say, ah, well, uh, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. So you're reading through it and you're like, well, I don't struggle with sorcery, so I'm doing okay. (laughs) Hopefully. But then listen to this, enmity, which is, you know, two groups not liking each other. Strife, jealousy. How come, every, how come I always have to be the one to, do, you know, say I'm sorry first or whatever? Fits of anger. Rivalries. Our team's better than your team. Our theology's better than your theology. Our church is bigger than your church and so on. Dissensions. What are you laughing about? Because we don't, <laughs> we don't have that problem, right? <laughs> dissensions, divisions, envy. Like, this is the list. This is the list. So don't just read this and say, well, I I haven't struggled with sorcery this week, and so it doesn't apply to me. Drunkenness, orgies, and things of this like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. Whoa. And then he goes on, and he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so how does the gospel change relationships? One way that the gospel changes relationships is by making us self-aware of sin and its consequences and the impact that it has in our lives, on our stuff, and in our relationships. The next one here is that God in his love sends Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice. That would be the heart of the gospel. That's where you'd put the crucifix. That's where the crucifixion happens. The heart of the gospel here is this idea that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an incredibly profound statement. So let me just read that again. God shows his love for us. Okay, so this is ultimate love. This is love like nobody. This is love like godly, holy, amazingly glorious and majestic love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. What that means is that salvation is totally unearned. God worked salvation for us while we were still sinners. The implication here is that now we know what real love is and we can give it to other people. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And what this means is that We are in relationships with people like us who are sinners, and they do annoying and hurtful things. People fail us. People don't live up to our expectations. We feel frustrated. We feel disappointed. We feel hurt. This person deserves bad treatment. This person deserves judgment. 
This person deserves for other people to know how they've done and so on and so on. And yet that's where the cross is so powerful. Instead of the cold shoulder, which is the intention to make someone pay, I'm cutting you off and so on. Instead of the cold shoulder, we lavish love instead. That's what love is. Instead of yelling, we kiss. Instead of gossiping, you'll never believe what a jerk this guy was. Instead of gossiping, we come alongside the person and help them defend their honor. And that is unearned. It is unearned. That's how God loves us. And when we understand that, we can give that kind of love to other people. It's an incredible power of God that comes into Christian relationships. The cross looks ridiculous at first glance. It looks silly that the whole thing depends on God becoming a a, a baby to a poor family growing up and then dying. And most of the people around him abandon him during that moment. And you seriously like, how does that relate to my life and my relationships? John 13, 34 says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. First Peter four, eight says above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Just like butter. And, and this includes suffering. This kind of love includes suffering. Jesus was nailed to an instrument of torture. And we don't think about that, you know, uh, that originally, the original church, their symbol is an instrument of torture. It would be like if we had a, a, an electric chair uh, up there or a noose hanging from, uh, hanging from the wall. And that's like the main symbol of our religion is an instrument of torture, a popular instrument of torture for criminals. I mean, imagine that. You walk into a building and there's a big noose coming down with lights coming up to it and be like, whoa. And that's the original impact that the cross had. There is suffering and there is torture involved in saving people. Jesus was nailed to an instrument of torture in order to save the very people that nailed him to the cross. That's what love looks like. It is a suffering love. So you say, well, but every time I go and try and love this person, I end up getting smacked on the, on the side of the face. Well, look, that, you know, we need to help people who are victims of injustice. We're not saying that you know, everybody needs to act like a doormat, but there is suffering involved in love. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is why Paul reminds them of the crucifixion in the middle of their relationship chaos. They've lost sight of how God loved them. And so they are uninspired to love each other. So that all they can think about is having their group and making sure that they get to sit by their friend and making sure that everybody cool gets invited to the party and wanting to make sure that the, that the most socially acceptable form of the church is the one that wins in this place. But the cross looks pathetic to outsiders. The God who dies, who wants this kind of God? But if we look harder, with the inside of the Holy Spirit, we find this majestic love that brings real unity and real happiness into the world. 
The ancient Greeks looked to the popular traveling speakers. There was more emphasis at that time on style than substance. This guy comes to town. Oh, he was the nicest guy. He was hilarious. It was great. He gave me a couple of life tips that were awesome. And that's what seemed like real life-changing teaching. And in 1 Corinthians 1.20, our passage this morning, Paul says, where's a wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? None of these traveling preachers figured out the majesty of the gospel. Worldly wisdom does not bring lasting peace and joy to relationships. Who are the wise people today? Who do you turn to to actually get something done? Like, okay, we we did a church service and I've read the Bible and I understand the gospel, but we actually need real help here because we have a real relationship problem. In reality, the crucifixion needs to be the central piece of bringing real change to our hearts and our homes and our churches. Next piece of the gospel here is that in his power, God raises Jesus to life as ruler and judge. What this means is that God defeats death. God has the power to defeat death. And God wants redemption in his creation. Uh, He wants a restoration of creation to his original intent. So the resurrection defeated what was wrong in creation, sin and death, and it restored Christ to the position of Lord and Lord, Lord of Lords, with believers ruling underneath him. The implication here is that the church and the Christian family are designed to bring order and love to a chaotic creation. And we have power from God to do that. The church and the Christian family are designed by God. We are restored by God to bring order and love to a, cre- to a chaotic creation. We have little Edens in our homes and in our churches as a result of the power of God working among us. John chapter 521 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. You see, the resurrection of God is given to believers. The resurrection power of God is given to believers. And the purpose is to defeat sin and death with God's love and God's order and God's beauty. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, Christians are given new life by the power of God. We're given new life, a power from God that is designed to impact the real world. In difficult relationships, sometimes people say, I can't do this anymore. People walk away, people slam doors, people file for divorce, people walk away or run away or whatever it, whatever it has to do. I'm out of here. I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to come to this place. I don't want to be in this place. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is the central idea, this this beautiful love that keeps us in relationship with people and keeps our attitude beautiful toward God and toward the people in authority over us. You see, people look to politics and people look to environmentalism and people look to technology and all kinds of things in order to change the world so that we'll all have a Star Trek society at some point where we've evolved beyond war and greed. But in reality, the only thing that changes the world, the only thing that brings peace on earth is the Spirit of God working through His people. 
The Spirit of God working through His people. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so we see that this presents us with a challenge to repent and believe. We learn to live repentantly. We learn to go through life with an awareness of who we are and with these constant choices to either bring glory to God and to do what God created us to do or to rebel against that and go our own way. We have this choice to either believe in God and to believe in his promises and to put our trust in him or to continue walking away and doing our own thing and only doing the things that we want to do, rejecting the things that we don't want to do in relationships and in all things, we cannot go our own way. Because if we do, we increase the chaos and at best, we live below the joy and below the peace that God has for us. We cannot go our own way. And so let's end here this morning with this passage from Second Peter chapter 1. You can turn there with me if you'd like or you can read it on the screen. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 8. In this passage, we learned that his divine power, by which he's referring to the Holy Spirit inside us, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, we have access to unlimited power. And we have that power so that we can love. And specifically, how do we access this power? And we find out here in the passage, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That shows us our purpose, that God saved us for a purpose, to bring him glory. And we can bring him glory because we have knowledge. So knowledge of what, the passage says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So we're talking about knowledge of God's promises, and then it goes on, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see, we bring glory to God because we have knowledge. We have knowledge of the promises of God, promises of God that allow us to share in his divine nature. In other words, he gives us power. He gives us access to his divine power so that we can become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And the effect of all of this is a very new reality. The passage goes on to say, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So there again. You have the cause of our problems, relational problems and other problems. It is sinful desire. So the passage goes on. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You see, God's power does not make us passive. I'm just sitting here and God is living my life. No, that is not how it works. I have a neighbor right now who's recovering from some kind of a sickness or injury and his legs are incredibly skinny. He can barely walk. So there's lots of physical therapy going on. Now, what if this guy woke up one morning and suddenly realized that he had his 20-year-old legs back again? He can walk. He can run. That is what salvation does. God restores us to creation design on the inside. Suddenly, we have the power to glorify God so that we can get up and act in the real world. We have power of a redeemed humanity, particularly to love God and to love other people. So again, this passage says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Now he's building up here. Where's going to be? Where's the climax going to be? Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our God, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how the passage climaxes with brotherly affection and love. If the core belief of our faith is the cross, then the goal of that faith is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is why Paul confronts the disunity at Corinth with the cross. And he reminds them, hey, this is pretty much all I preached when I was among you. Because it's the most important thing. You've got to know the crucifixion. You've got to understand the ins and outs and the whys and the wherefores of the crucifixion. And then you've got to act out the implications of the crucifixion in real life. Now, that message seems very silly to outsiders. People all over the globe today think that the Trinity is nonsense. And a little church like this seems very silly compared to TV shows and popular books that tell us how to organize our lives and find true happiness. And there was a very similar problem at Corinth popular traveling teachers with amazing presentations that entertained people by explaining the meaning of life and how to be happy in this world. And Paul relies on the cross, the simple, silly, foolish message of the cross. That simple murder is the key to understanding what God is like and what love is like. And there is no other idea that is more powerful to bring peace on earth. Let me just uh, finish with this from, uh, from Mary, the mother of God. This is the Magnificat. This is what she, a little poem that she wrote right after uh, she found out that she was going to give birth to the Messiah in Luke chapter 1. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now listen to what she said after she's grappled with the incredible honor of being uh, given the ability to give birth to the Son of God. Now here's what she's going to say. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. See, the promises of God have an incredible majesty to bring real power into our lives, power that comes from the knowledge of the cross, power that makes a difference in relationships power that brings peace into the real world. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, we know that none of us is particularly powerful or interesting or popular in the world's standards. And yet you have given us the most powerful message on earth. You have shown us the most important truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We praise you for revealing this to us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand the ins and outs of the gospel and help us to live out the gospel in the way that we treat people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.